leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. As the debate over drug pricing intensifies, biotech investor Peter Kolchinsky is weighing in with a proposed approach to balance access to medicines with the incentive for companies to invest in the development of innovative therapies. In his new book, The Great American Drug Deal, Kolchinsky makes the case for an approach to drug pricing that would ensure the timely movement of innovative drugs to generic versions, while also suggesting mechanisms for cutting the price of therapeutics after patents and exclusivity periods expire when competition fails to arise. We spoke to Kolchinsky about the great American drug deal, his notion of a biotech social contract, and why it's critical that the industry think differently than it has in the past about approaches to reform drug pricing. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Daniel. We're going to talk about your new book, The Great American Drug Deal, Drug Pricing, and how we can balance access and innovation. Perhaps we can start with defining the challenge that's before us. What was the problem you were trying to address? Sure. So, uh, you know, I've spent my career uh, looking for new technologies, interesting new new uh, drug candidates that uh, my team could help support to become new drugs. You know, a lot of my work is really in the in the science and the clinical data. And uh, you know, my assumption had been that when we succeed, you know, we we help patients, we make a difference in the world, um, and. Uh, I knew that the you know public uh, you know had trouble uh, dealing with the high prices of drugs, but you know we've long had uh, lobby groups in the industry that uh, sort of stood up for uh, the value that the industry was offering. And um, I assumed when in 2015 there was a particularly uh, you know fierce uproar. Uh, over uh, Turing price jacking uh, an old drug, Daraprim, um, I assume that uh, the industry would have a cogent response and reassure the public and Congress that, uh, you know, these are outliers, these are not reflective of the uh, biopharmaceutical business model. Um, but it's not really what I heard. Uh, what, what I heard was, you know, patients, and on behalf of patients, the media and members of Congress saying, you know, patients can't afford drugs. People can't afford their insulin, right? Uh, that's, 
that was clear and that that was uh, outrageous. And what the industry said was, well, drug development is very expensive, you know, it's risky. And it's like, well, wait a second, that's not an answer to the question that's being posed. You know, uh, the answer is it's terrible that patients can't afford uh, what their doctors are prescribing. You know, it's essential that they be able to afford and access what their doctors are prescribing. That's what insurance is for, right? And if you can't afford what your doctor prescribes, it means that America's insurance system has failed you. Uh, now, as for whether or not America is getting value for drugs, that's another question. That's not exactly the question that patients are asking, but it, it was certainly on the minds of, you know, members of the media and, and Congress. And uh, there, there's a different answer. Again, one that the industry wasn't giving. It's that, uh, yes, our drugs definitely offer value. And all you have to do to see that is to uh, just look back at all of the drugs that, you know, we've invested in that were expensive to develop, and now we're available for pennies a pill as generics. We've got billions, tens of billions of dollars of research, hundreds of billions of dollars of research that are now available as really inexpensive pennies a pill generic uh, drugs. And all the drugs that we are in, uh, paying high prices for now will or should eventually go generic and continue to offer humanity value for the rest of all time. We are paying off mortgages on uh, assets that the public will own, right? And if we're still spending the $271 billion on branded drugs that we spent in 2018, if we're still spending that in 15 years, it's because every drug we have today has gone generic and we have invented an entirely new set of drugs, right? That doesn't happen in any other area of healthcare. Hospitals and surgeries do not go generic. Drugs offer the best value of anything in healthcare, with the one caveat being, by the way, that actually some drugs don't go generic. They can't go generic, and you know that is a problem. That's a violation of what I came to call the biotech social contract, and that can be fixed with reforms. At the moment, it's a relatively small part of our expenditures, but it could grow over time. So we definitely should nip it in the bud now. Well, right? I wasn't hearing industry saying that, but those were the ideas that were rattling around in my mind. And uh, eventually, I buckled down and just started writing. Uh, at first I wrote articles and then eventually I, as I answered um, a, a lot of the questions that came up like, but what about you know, the EpiPen and what about direct consumer advertising? I wrote more articles and eventually I had enough material there that I felt I, I needed to stitch it together into a cogent book. And, uh, and that's the book that you, you have in front of you. You know, this is an industry that's extending lives, enabling people with chronic conditions to lead normal lives, and even now producing functional cures for deadly and disabling diseases. And yet it, it finds itself now ranked in the most recent Gallup survey on public perceptions of industries as being the most reviled industry in the country. What role has pricing played in this? And, and do you think it suggests some failure on the part of the industry to tell its story or make its case? So uh, I definitely think that the industry has not told uh, its story effectively over time. Um, but uh, the biggest misunderstanding that the public has is that um, the uh, price of drugs uh, is not directly uh, responsible for the lack of affordability, right? What patients pay is a function of insurance. What society as a whole pays, yes, that is a 
function of drug prices, right? And so when you have an expensive drug, uh, maybe for cystic fibrosis, a drug that costs $200,000, you know, there is, uh, practically speaking, no discount that you can negotiate from that company without driving into the ground that will make that drug affordable for patients. You can uh, take a 50% haircut in all the branded expensive drugs that are out there, and you still would not make them affordable directly to patients. Uh, that requires insurance. But a 50% haircut on all those prices would wipe out the industry. You would, uh, it would take far less of a cut than that to eliminate profits, eliminate executive compensation, basically reduce the industry to a uh, modestly uh, compensated nonprofit, right? And I don't think that that would drive innovation. You know, that's not going to attract the kinds of billions and billions of dollars of private capital required to fund these risky clinical trials. Meanwhile, a 50% haircut on all these drugs will not have made these drugs more affordable. A patient can no uh, more afford a $100,000 drug than a $200,000 drug. You need insurance for that, right? If America were to pay for, uh, you know, uh, basically protecting ourselves against fire, right, fire departments, the way that we pay for healthcare, you would have a town fire department that says, well, of course we have to fund ourselves, uh, you know, at least 20 or 30 percent of our budget by charging uh, families co-payments if their houses are on fire. And if they can't pay the co-payment, I guess we're just going to have to stand there and let their house burn, right? And so we would be watching as families, uh, you know, lose everything with a fire truck standing outside their, uh, their home on the street, uh, just idly, uh, you know, waiting uh, for their house to burn and maybe protecting the neighboring houses from, from catching fire. So, you know, people would be outraged over that. Yet it doesn't happen because we properly insure Americans against fire. We actually pay fully for fire departments out of taxes. And that's what insurance premiums are. You know, you can call them what you like. Uh, insurance premiums or taxes, the bottom line is healthcare is a right in America. We all feel it. We treat it like it's a right. We're outraged when somebody uh, goes without care. And as a right, it's something that we should be funding for uh, across the board you know, from uh, our cumulative income. We've got $17 trillion of income in the United States. You can't tell me that out of that budget, we can't afford to pay the $271 billion for branded drugs and the $70-some billion for generics on behalf of those few Americans, comparatively speaking, who need care. We absolutely can make uh, all drugs affordable. Before we get into specific proposals of the book, I wanted to take a step back as Someone with visibility into the thinking within a drug company, how do companies set prices for their products? What are the considerations they make? Well, I think that uh, it helps to think about a moment when someone is considering starting up uh, just a discovery project. You know, you, you think you've figured out what the problem is with a given disease. You know, protein X, if we can just inhibit protein X, we will solve disease X. And, uh, and the question becomes, should we invest in that uh, lab experiment to try to develop an inhibitor for protein X? And uh, you know it's going to be risky. You know it's going to be expensive. And uh, based on precedence, you know that if this drug can generate, let's say, $500 million or a $1 billion worth of revenue per year, 
for the typical lifespan of a, a brand of drug, the patent detected period, which is 10 to 15 years, then you know that uh, generally that's the kind of uh, development program that will attract funding from other investors, right? You know that if all it can generate, if all you offer up is a drug that's going to sell 50 or $100 million a year, it won't. It won't be attractive to investors. It will not get the funding, the hundreds of millions of dollars that will be required at a minimum uh, to develop that drug. And so you take a number like $500 million or $700 million of U.S. sales, you know, sales in America, and you ask yourself, all right, how many patients are likely to need that drug? And if the answer is, well, probably about um, a million, right, a million patients, then you think like, all right, well, you know, it sounds like we could basically uh, charge like $1,000 a year for this drug. And uh, if a million patients were to get it, that would be a billion-dollar drug. Yeah, I mean, $1,000 doesn't sound like it's much. Well, the trouble is that there aren't too many diseases, you know, where you can develop a drug and treat a million patients. Uh, in fact, those are the most expensive diseases to develop drugs for. Increasingly, we're finding that in order to develop a drug for a disease, you have to narrowly define that disease you know, uh, and, and be so precise that there may be only tens of thousands of patients who are going to need it, right? And so if it turns out that you've got 10,000 patients that you think might need treatment, then dividing a billion dollars by 10,000 means you're going to have to charge $100,000 per patient. And, you know, if uh, you read what's out there in the press and what Congress is saying, and you start to think, yeah, I don't think that by the time we bring this drug to market, if we're successful, that the public and Congress are going to be supportive of paying $100,000 per patient. You know, I think that they will have a Congress that has now uh, decided that uh, the government gets to quote unquote negotiate price, which is to say, just tell you what it's going to pay, you know, or, or else you can take a hike. Um, and that they will run some math models like what ICER does that says, oh, I think this is worth maybe $10,000 we'll pay you a tenth of what you're asking for, then I just can't develop that drug, you know, because I don't think I'm going to be able to charge the $100,000 per patient it's going to take. So I'm going to have to stop this project right now while it's just in the cradle, right? And so the ability to fund these, you know, from inception requires the faith that the United States ultimately is going to be willing to pay, uh, you know, something like, $100,000 for a disease where there might be 10,000 patients, or maybe more than $100,000 uh, for certain cases. Certainly, if I think that uh, insurance companies are going to say, oh, this is so expensive, I'm going to limit it to the most severely affected uh, patients with this disease. I'm going to let only, you know, 2,000 patients get this drug. Well, then you're going to change your math. You're going to say, well, then I'm going to take a billion dollars and divide by 2,000. Do I believe that then society will pay $500,000 per year for just the most severely affected 2,000 patients. And that's kind of a shame, right? Because if you thought society would be willing to uh, let all 10,000 patients have the drug, you would charge 100,000. But if you think that society is going to find 100,000 too much and limit it to only the most severe, you charge $500,000. And if society is going to say, oh, 500 is so much, we're going to limit it only to the most severe 100 patients, well, then what? You're going to charge $10 million per patient? And you're probably going to say, no, it sounds like the math is just undoable. 
that you know uh, there is no finding a price multiplied by a number of patients that will get me to the reward, that will let me inspire investors to fund this. So I should just call it all off. So that's the dampening effect that all of this rhetoric, you know, could potentially have on investment. That we lose faith that America is going to be willing to pay for success if and when we're successful. There's a tendency to consider drug pricing as a thing unto itself, as opposed to part of the healthcare ecosystem. Is it a mistake to look at this in a self-contained way rather than as a component of a healthcare system in need of reform? Um, I think that uh, it's certainly important that we think about drug development um, incentivizing fuel and drug development uh, by paying for branded drugs as a part of um, certainly our healthcare system. And that's because uh, when people suffer from diseases, like in, in the book, for example, I, I talk about uh, the need for hip replacement surgery, that, you know, we've got 400,000 hip replacements in the U.S. each year, and uh, they cost uh, something on the order of $40,000 each, and that's not counting the months and months of rehabilitation that uh, patients need. You're talking about north of $16 billion a year of spending on hip replacement surgeries. Now, there's no one corporation that America can hate, you know, that's charging $16 billion for a hip replacement product. You know, the, this is uh, the cost of hospitals and hospital beds and surgeons and some, you know, medical devices. And so those costs are spread out so that the public kind of doesn't really have a particular target for its outrage over spending. But imagine if a company developed a drug that strengthened bones, right? And by strengthening our bones, uh, it cut the number of hip replacements dramatically, let's say in half, right? That would be profound. Uh, and uh, let's say that that drug initially... Uh, was priced uh, such that all the patients taking collectively generated $10 billion in revenue. So let's say it shaved half of your $16 billion that you're spending on hip replacements, so that's uh, $8 billion less, but you're spending $10 billion on the drug. So initially, you're spending a couple billion dollars more than you would have if you'd never invented the drug. Does the public see that it's spending $2 billion more? No. It just sees a single company raking in $10 billion, and it hates that company. And Congress vilifies that company, and the media vilifies that company, right? So they don't see the savings. Um, but what's really distressing, I, I think, is that uh, that drug is going to be expensive for, you know, 10 to 15 years. But after that, when it goes generic and becomes extremely inexpensive, it will continue to leave the rate of hip replacement surgeries cut in half. And so that means it will continue saving $8 billion a year. Except 20 years from now, it's not really saving $8 billion a year because hip replacements would be a lot more expensive and there'll probably be more of them. By that point, society would have probably been spending, would be spending something like $30 billion a year, you know, if we hadn't invented the drug. But because we'll have invented it and it's generic, we'll be spending, let's say, half. We'll be shaving $15 billion of spending. So any American, you know, that's ever uh, paid rent on an apartment or thought about buying a house would recognize that it's worth paying a bit more, you know, in a mortgage for a finite period of time and then own a home than be stuck paying rent forever. People get that. 
But when it comes to drug pricing and, you know, the value that are offered society, people don't get it. They don't see that drugs that will go generic uh, are a, an asset that you can acquire through a mortgage, whereas things like, you know, surgery and rehabilitation, um, those are rents. Rents we will be stuck paying for forever if we don't invent, uh, you know, manufactured goods called drugs to basically prevent them. Throughout the book, you talk about a biotech social contract. What do you mean by the term biotech social contract? Sure. So, um, you know, uh, essentially what I would say is that uh, the biotech social contract, if you were to write some kind of a, a document, you know, like what the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence are for America, right, a statement of our values and how we will conduct uh, ourselves uh, and what each citizen uh, owes to the country and what the country owes to each citizen, if we were to create such a document uh, governing the relationship between all of us as a community, society, and the portion of our society that we've charged with making drugs, um, then I would call it the biotech social contract, and it would go like this, that the biotechnology industry, which includes pharmaceutical companies. I don't really make a distinction. You can call it the biopharmaceutical industry. Basically, the drug development industry commits to making drugs that will go generic without undue delay. And in exchange, society will make, uh, make it affordable for patients through proper insurance with, you know, minimal or no uh, out-of-pocket costs to uh, make it affordable for patients to receive the drugs that their physicians prescribe actually get proper treatment, right? So proper insurance in exchange for genericizable drugs. And that way, all patients can afford what their doctors are prescribing, and America continues to get value for its mortgage payments. It will continue to uh, pay off drugs, and it builds this giant generic drug mountain that we've already got, and uh, basically improve uh, healthcare, standard of care, um, year after year after year, uh, without the cost stacking. When you think about every single problem that we've, uh, you know, faced with the uh, lack of affordability or the EpiPen or insulin or anything like that, it, uh, if you align it against the biotech social contract, what I found is that the solution presents itself, right? So how are patients, uh, you know, who are desperate um fear of coronavirus, you know, those with respiratory infections and older patients, what if they have poor insurance? How are they going to afford the treatments that we're uh, rushing to develop for coronavirus? Well, you know, the answer is not, you know, having some nonprofit try to develop a vaccine or whatever the answer is, insurance. And that insurance can come from their insurance plans, or maybe the government just declares that, uh, you know, society will guarantee you that if you need a treatment for coronavirus, uh, it will pay for that out of a special fund, right? Insurance takes many forms. You, you call this a social contract, but a social contract is an implicit agreement. You're really talking about a much more formalized contract. Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, I, you know, a social con I, I would argue that the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, is a social contract, right? Um, Certainly, it exists because we all believe in it, right? But 
uh, it also is backed by the force of law. It is law, right? And so there are aspects of um, the biotech social contract that, in order to be put into effect, require uh, rules and regulations that don't yet exist. So I would not expect, for example, that insurance companies are going to suddenly wake up one day and say, oh, we're all just going to do the right thing and make, you know, all appropriate treatments affordable to all patients. You know, we'll lower out-of-pocket costs. They won't do that. I think technically it would be collusion for them to all get into one room and discuss what they're all going to do. So the FTC would probably block that uh, as much as it would be in the public's interest. Um, but, uh, you know, also if any one of them went first, they would worry that their plan would now be a bit more expensive than their competitor's plan. And some company that's shopping around for uh, a healthcare plan for its employees, you know, would go for the cheaper plan, right? So they would be afraid to lose business. So if Congress were to pass a law that says nobody can sell insurance in America uh, and call it insurance unless it has a certain, um, you know, cap on out-of-pocket costs, you know, let's say nobody can be charged more than $500 a year in out-of-pocket costs, uh, and people who make below a certain amount of income cannot be charged, you know, any out-of-pocket costs. If there were a law that said that, then all insurance plans would have to compete, you know, within the constraints of that law. And so they would all try to run themselves as efficiently as possible and, you know, win business. And just like Congress outlawed, uh, you know, discrimination against patients based on pre-existing conditions, Congress can pass a law, and in fact, there are several laws being proposed to cap out-of-pocket costs. So that would now help bring about at least that side of the biotech social contract. And as for all drugs going generic without undue delay, well, that too, as I discussed in the book, requires actually a new regulation. Um, it's not like a radically novel one. It basically just says when there's a product that has a natural monopoly, like it cannot, cannot be commoditized. Nobody can make a copy of it. Uh, and compete in the market. So a gene therapy oftentimes uh, would be ungenericizable. Then a natural monopoly should be regulated. And so after what I propose in the book is that after a, an initial period um, that would be covered by uh, the initial patent, um, that the drug be put uh, under a price control regime that would drop its price to, let's say, two times the cost of production, as if it had gone generic. And so you will achieve through this price regulation what would have otherwise been achievable through competition if it were the kind of drug that could be genericized. I think that's one of the, the more compelling aspects to what you've done here, where you've inserted what I'd call safeguards to ensure adherence to what you're calling a social contract. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, in the area of biologics, we, we've really not seen a robust biosimilar market emerge yet in the United States, and the products that have biosimilars have fallen far short of the savings that you'd see with generic drugs. Do you see that type of price control or whatever you want to call, do you, do you see that addressing yeah, the problem we've had in regards to biologics? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, a, a simpler way to, uh, to think of it, uh, price control is already a loaded term. Um, it, I call it contractual genericization, right? Uh, so it echoes the idea of biotech social contract. So there's genericization of the drug through competition because lots of 
companies, generic companies can make copies of a drug, Lipitor, you know, easy to make a copy of it, and there were dozens of companies making it, so the price collapsed by well over 90%. But a gene therapy, you just can't make a copy of it. Well, there are certain types of drugs like antibodies where you can make a copy, it's just really expensive. These biosimilars are really expensive, so you get only a few companies making uh, competing products. Um, I think that what that does is it creates uh, oligopolies. You go from a monopoly to an oligopoly. And uh, the trouble is that sometimes an oligopoly can still result in some reductions in price, but not really the kind of precipitous declines that you expect from genericization. And uh, having contractual genericization as a backstop to basically say, look, um, you know, you've invented a great drug, you uh, collected mortgage payments from society for, you know, a reasonable period of time, whatever your patent cost of 13 years, let's say, uh, you know, and now society is owed the asset that it has paid off. It should be able to access that inexpensively, as close to your cost of production. And it would be great to diversify the supply. It would be great if multiple other manufacturers stepped in, that would be nice. But frankly, that is less important than making sure that one way or the other, society gets the asset that is paid off at a low cost. So here's what we're going to do. On the day that your contractual, your drug is supposed to uh, go contractually generic, you will drop the price to two times your cost of production. If it turns out that uh, that is a ceiling, and that others are capable of competing with you at a price lower than that, great, then there's still room for competition. If you had uh, dropped, um, if you'd set a price like that, you know, for uh, Lipitor, you know, I wonder whether somebody would have stepped in and said, oh, well, I can make it even cheaper than that, I'll still compete with you. So you might have still had a vibrant generics market um, at, you know, below those prices. But if no one else can, if no one wants to compete with you at, at that price, um, then that's fine too, because one way or the other, the public is going to get what it paid for. It will get your drug inexpensively. One other area that you address is, is the way companies today try to fight generic competition, um, particularly through what would be incremental improvements to existing therapeutics which you acknowledge have value. What's the vision you have in, in both encouraging those types of improvements while preventing them from forestalling uh, competition? Yeah, so, um, you know, a very basic improvement, right, would be taking a drug that initially, when it was launched, uh, had to be taken twice a day. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, you find a way to formulate it so that you can uh, take it as a single pill uh, once a day, right? That's a nice upgrade. Uh, and today, um, a company will do that. So Pfizer, for example, uh, their drug Lyrica uh, went generic last year. Um, and it's a big selling drug. It's an important drug. It treats neuropathic pain and a few other disorders. And um, they have Lyrica CR which is a CR stands for controlled release. And, um, you know, that's the once daily version of Lyrica. So Lyrica, the regular Lyrica, went generic. So they are now generic under the generic name Pregabalin, 
out there that are inexpensive. But Lyric and CR is still a branded drug. I think it's branded until the year uh, 2026. And the thing is, is that insurance companies would be entirely within their right, I believe, to say, we're just not paying any more for Lyric and CR than for the generics, right? You know, having a, a drug that costs uh, a lot more for um, just the slight convenience of being taken once a day, you know, that's not worth it. That's not good value. Um, I would hope that they would recognize that there's a little bit of value there uh, going from twice a day to once a day. I mean, to the extent that everybody would be more adherent to the medicine and, uh, it, you know, uh, allows them to not think, you know, um, about taking their drug uh, as much. That's a good thing. It's something I would want uh, in a generic that we're going to be using for the rest of all time. But I could see how insurance companies would say it's not worth it, right? And so uh, would Pfizer have developed it if they knew that as soon as their original Lyrica went generic, they basically wouldn't get paid for this new version of Lyrica CR. So that would be a shame, right, if they never developed that in the first place. And so I would argue that you could have given Pfizer six more months of market exclusivity for uh, Lyrica in exchange for upgrading it to a once-daily and then allowed that now upgraded drug to go generic six months later than it otherwise would have. We already do that to entice companies into running pediatric trials so that we know we have actual data on how to use drugs that were developed for adults properly in kids, right? Otherwise, if we didn't get those kinds of data, companies, you know, might not feel compelled to study how to use drugs that are meant for diseases that adults get, uh, how to, uh, you know, might not be compelled to study them um, in children, given that maybe very few children would have neuropathic pain and need them, and therefore it's not enough of the market. Uh, and so the FDA explicitly incentivizes it by extending uh, Pfizer's patents by six more months and giving them six more months of revenues, which in the case of Lyrica is billions of dollars, right? So I'm just proposing uh, using such short exclusivity extensions uh, as an incentive to make these modest upgrades. Today, actually, the reason Pfizer does make money from Lyrica CR is because of a perversity uh, in our insurance system. The PBMs, you know, which are agents for our insurance companies, they are collecting a big kickback from Pfizer for Lyrica CR. And so it's in their interest to see uh, Lyrica CR used by many patients. Uh, they, you know, uh, condoned Pfizer uh, paying the co-payments with patient assistance programs for Lyrica CR. Right. And the PBMs will tell their clients, the insurance companies, oh, yes, well, we're extracting big rebates. Here you go, you know, from Lyrica CR. But in, in reality, the PBMs are keeping a sliver of that. So they're basically getting a kickback from encouraging the use of this uh, upgraded drug. And, uh, you know, that may sort of be fine and that incentivizes that innovation. But the reality is that those kickbacks, you know, end up uh, costing patients very dearly in other ways. Those, for example, who don't have insurance uh, will find that when there's a unique drug that they need, that drug's list price might be inflated because PBMs have urged companies, I want you to charge a very high list price so that I can look like a hero and negotiate down rebates. You know, I, I want uh, to look like I've negotiated these huge rebates off of you, and therefore my client will think that I'm really useful. And so you see these list prices of drugs going up and up and up, 
and the rebates climbing as well. The net prices on drugs have not been increasing for the last few years, right? But when patients who don't have insurance or have to pay for drugs out of their deductible, out of pocket, um, are given a price, it's based on that list price. So I actually would like to see uh, PBMs become unaddicted from rebates uh, because that would be better for patients, and I discussed that in the book. But if that happened, then Pfizer might not make money off Lyrica CR anymore, right? And therefore, they might not be incentivized to develop it in the first place. So that's why I propose uh, contractual genericization as a backstop for all drugs to ensure they go generic, but to preserve the incentives for incremental innovation by extending the date when uh, your drug is going to go generic. Incremental incentive is basically for incremental innovation. What's the plan going forward? Are you doing things to get industry, make, industry and, and policymakers to embrace these proposals? So the articles that I had written uh, a couple of years ago, and now the book that I put out, um, have uh, kicked off some really interesting conversations. Uh, around the industry, some of which um, I've been invited to be a part of. And so I, I get to see that the gears are turning uh, throughout the industry at some very large companies that are uh, you know, made up of people that are trying to do the right thing, right? They're trying to figure out how to uh, launch a new drug that they know that the public might be uh, you know, concerned about, you know, it might uh, generate considerable revenues, and yet, when they launch, they want to make sure that it's presented to the public in a way that um, gets people to see the, uh, the value that society's going to get. And, you know, they're, uh, they're uncertain as to how to present, uh, you know, their drugs, um, you know, given all the uh, hatred, frankly, that's out there, right? And so, you know, we've seen how uh, payers reacted to the PCSK9 inhibitors. And I think that any company launching a new drug, it feels, you know, burned by that. You know, even if it's not Amgen and Sanofi and Regeneron with the pcsk 9 every company, I think, was affected by the public's reaction to those drugs, uh, which are some of the most innovative and valuable drugs we've ever created. And so um, I've been uh, asked uh, to come in and brainstorm with uh, people in a number of companies to figure out, you know, what does it mean to say we're launching this drug and we want to launch it in accordance with the biotech social contract? Like, how do we present that? Right? And I think that that's a really great uh, question. It's a question we should have always been asking ourselves, um, and, and we haven't. Now we're starting to. Right? How do we present the value proposition? And one of the first things that I, I will ask any such company is, um, will your drug go readily generic? And in some cases, the answer is no. And, uh, you know, it's pretty complicated to make. I think it's going to be hard for others to make a copy. And I would say, okay, well, are you prepared to commit to having your, your price drop after your patents expire, allowing for some extensions of that if you end up upgrading your drug? You know, and I wish I could tell you right now that the answer is that they all say wholeheartedly, yes, we commit to it. Um, actually, some have said that. Yes, we totally would. If we thought that that is what would allow all the patients who are going to need our drug to actually be able to access it, if society would honor its end of the social contract by properly covering our drug, 
then yes, we would commit to having our drug drop in price when it goes, uh, when the patents expire. But others, you know, have said, we're going to have to discuss that, right? I mean, it's a big commitment. But all of them, I think, at the moment, realize that unless there is a mechanism by which society can take its end of the contract and enforce it, that all they can do, uh, all the people who are in these companies can do, is speak for themselves. But, you know, certainly in the case of public companies, the boards can turn over, the shareholders can turn over, and they can just rescind any, you know, uh, public promise that they have made, right? And so as nice as it is that, you know, companies are actually mulling this idea and, and seriously considering what contractual generalization might mean for them, the reality is that um, we need to be supportive as an industry of laws, of, you know, new regulations that uh, make contractual generalization possible for those drugs that can't go generic. And, uh, you know, at the moment, two of the major lobby groups, Bio and Pharma, um, they have read my book. You know, I have spoken with them about contractual generalization. Um, and they're a lot more open-minded than you might think of um, organizations representing big companies uh, as being. So that's promising. Um, but I think that uh, probably some of the nervousness might be that, well, what if we say that we are open to contractual generalization and Congress merely says, oh, great, then here, we'll impose it. But they won't, you know, then act on the other side of it, lowering out-of-pocket costs. What if it's simply something that the industry ends up giving up and getting nothing in return, right? And so what I'm, uh, you know, advocating for is not that the industry just says, sure, you know, impose this new regulation on us, but rather use the fact that, you know, this is... Uh, you know, something that the industry um, would be giving up uh, and offer it up as the pound of flesh that Congress clearly wants in exchange for lowering out-of-pocket costs, right? When you look at a bill like H.R. 3, it actually addressed drug prices and out-of-pocket costs for patients. It sort of attempts to formulate a, a biotech social contract of its own. And uh, the ACA, Obamacare, it's the same way. You know, it was about extending insurance and getting more people covered, but also baked into uh, ACA was biosimilar legislation to try to bring about the genericization of biologics. So you can see that Congress already thinks about these two sides of uh, what previously was an unspoken social contract, and now I'm simply laying it out, right? And so HR3 could have been modified so that instead of imposing price controls uh, on drugs at all points in their lifespan, including at launch, rather you just shift those price controls to the back end after the initial patents have expired and use them to ensure that all drugs become inexpensive after an initial mortgage period. If you had done that to HR3 and then kept the parts of it that lower out-of-pocket costs, you would basically have the legislation that I'm advocating for. So HR3 wasn't that far off the mark. You know, just leave the out-of-pocket cost reductions. In fact, extend them to private insurance as well, because it really only talks about Medicare. And then take your price controls and shift them to the back end after the patents have expired. That would be great. The book is The Great American Drug Deal, a new prescription for innovative and affordable medicines. 
Peter Kolchinski, founding partner of RA Capital Management, author. Peter, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.